each of our lives uh, to draw us to you. And uh, we thank you for the people. We thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, just circumstances, all of these things that you use to, to open up our eyes to see the truth of the gospel. And Lord, we know that that is um, not only our story, but that's also the story that Brian and Lois want for the Nepali people to tell as well. And uh, we just pray right now that you would give them strength. We know that as hard and as devastating as an earthquake is, that you are more powerful than that. And in fact, uh, in some way, in, in some, uh, some, some form, you are, you're going to use even this awful thing for good. And uh, we just pray, God, um, Psalm 34 for Brian and Lois, where, where it says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. God, we pray that um, Brian and Lois, that their faces would radiate as they trust in you and that they would shine in a dark world and that they would um, point people to you and that uh, the, the Tibetan Buddhists that they're seeking to minister to would come to faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being partners in the gospel with them. We pray that you would use these resources as a means of furthering our work of the gospel, not only here in Tallahassee, but all around the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you could turn to Revelation chapter 21. There's already been multiple sermons better than mine will be today, um, but we're going to take a, a look quickly in, uh, in the end of the book. If you have a question about where our text is from today, just pick up a Bible and flip to the back, uh, flip all the way to the, to the back of it, and uh, we're near the end of what is, uh, we're near the end of what has taken place, what God is up to, and this really comes at the end of a four-week uh, sort of pause in our Acts series. We wanted to invite people to hope. We wanted to invite people to think about life beyond this earth. We borrowed a phrase from C.S. Lewis. He called this place the Shadowlands, this idea that even the joys and happiness, the things of this world will be seen as but a shadow um, in in the end, that we're going to be ushered into a newness and a a, a substance of life that will be completely, completely perfect. We have spent time looking at the resurrection of Jesus, the fact that he sat down at the right hand of God. It was finished. His work was complete. We looked at his present ministry, the fact that the gospel is not just a past tense. It's not a past tense reality. It's not only what he did then, that he is for you. He loves you, is working for you even now. And then, if we can, we're going to read a few verses to begin to think about the future. We're going to begin to think about what happens in life after life, after death. It's an uncomfortable topic for many people. Nearly every philosophy that has ever been forged on the face of this planet has dealt with the question, what happens when we die? Because you see, we have this peculiar thing where all of us feel as though this shouldn't be the extent of things, feel like we should be invincible, feels like we should live on, and yet every person dies. The gospel has something to say to the afterlife. It has a hope to offer to people not only for the here and now, not only to deal with past sins, but also for the future. And we offer to people an anemic 
a narrow, a small hope if we don't ground ourselves very particularly on the hope that has been given to us for the future. We're going to see that in the end, God is making all things new. He's done that through Jesus Christ. There is not a single rogue electron in the universe who will escape the impact of the resurrection. The resurrection matters supremely, as we'll see, because in the end, it will affect every single aspect of the universe. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 21 of Revelation. I'm just going to read the first five verses. Follow along with me, if if you could. There's a Bible there, you could take it if you need it. This is nearing the end of the vision that... The Apostle John was given. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Let me pray. God, thank you that these words are trustworthy and true. We stake our lives on them. We stake our after lives on them. You have worked for us, are continuing to work. Jesus has gone away so that he might prepare a place for us. And I ask that in the next few moments, you would give us clarity of mind, a sincerity of thought, softness in our hearts so that we could consider what it is that Jesus has promised and is doing for us. I pray that when we speak to the world, it would not be a hope that is void of the future perfection that you're going to usher in, the relationship that we will have with you. So God, help us, even in these moments together, God, help us, give direction, clarity. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I want to make things quick, and really the heart behind this particular top, this particular talk, sermon, topic, whatever you want to call it, is that we need to be well equipped for where it is that we're actually going. You are not home. You are not home. That is a fundamental, a foundational, a key element of the Christian faith that you are not home. You were designed to live in a world that was void of sin and had perfect relationship with God. We are now living in a place that is fallen and broken and that there is something inside of each of us that should be longing to live in the place that we have been designed to be. Namely, a place of perfection where the worship of God is unhindered and our relationship with him is perfectly unified. I'm going to say just four things, four phrases that will give us a foundation. This is not going to give you a PhD in eschatology. I'm not going to solve every riddle of the end times for you, 
but I want to give some basic foundations that should launch you into a desire to learn more. You should want to grow in these things. This is what I think we're going to find. We need to wrestle with the fact and really settle in on the old fall. The old fall. Now, if I were in Nashville, I might say the grand old fall. No? But um you no. The old fall. Really, what is this place? Some of the reasons we do not long for newness is we are quite content with what we have here and now. You don't know it, maybe, but you really think heaven for you is just like an Apple Watch. Like, just get that next new thing. Apple Watch fell flat at 9 a.m. too. I guess no one's excited. I guess no one's excited. I'll call, I'll call Mr. Cook and tell him. The old fall. We need to wrestle with the old fall. In addition to the old fall, we need to realize that because of the fall, God is going to make a new place. There is a new place. That is what's coming. That's the testimony of the Bible. There's a new place. So we need to reckon with the fall. Then we need to think to ourselves, okay, what is this place? Where will we land? In other words, we need to answer the question, what is heaven like? That's the question that we normally ask. We're going to find that the Bible has more to say about that than we'd think. And not only the old fall in a new place, but we need to reckon with the fact that we'll all have new bodies. It's not just the place that will be new. You will be brand new. Better abs. Flying. Some of you are insulted. Like, have you seen my abs? Doesn't get, doesn't get better than this, right? New you. New bodies. There's an old fall. There's going to be a new place and there will be a new you. New bodies. And then finally, to wrap things up, we need to wrestle with and get our hearts stirred by this idea that there will be a new kind of unity. There will be a unity to things. We will not have a dual, dual idea of, well, the physical and decaying and decrepit and sinful is here and the perfect and the righteous and the wonderful God is there. There will no more be God is there. He will only be here and now and present and real. There will be a new kind of unity. The way that we see this, to reckon with the idea that there's an old fall, comes implicitly from the text. He says, I saw there's a new heaven and a new earth. That's the implicit part. Okay, so there has to be something new. Must mean that something was wrong, maybe with the old one. And then we get it explicitly right after that in the rest of verse 1. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. That's not the only thing that is done away with. Verse 4, he wipes away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You will never long for heaven unless you reckon with and are honest about the fact that you are broken and this place is broken. Christianity is not an attempt to pull the wool over our eyes and to believe that we are in a candy cane world. Christianity has nothing of putting your fingers in your ears and saying death doesn't exist, bad things don't exist, this didn't really happen. We must deal with reality. Christians of all people need to be honest and say, you know what, that's really terrible. I'm so sorry. And I think sometimes our pat answer, we want to say to things, 
Oh, it doesn't matter. None of that matters. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. No, 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 no. Christianity starts with saying things are not fine. You will never long for heaven until you reckon with the fact that things are really fallen. Your soul is fallen, both by nature. It wasn't your fault. You were born into this thing. Adam sinned and it affected you. Yes, it did. But some of it was very much our fault. We know exactly what is right. Our consciences scream out to us. And in that exact moment we know what's right, we do exactly what is wrong. This place is fallen. It's the reason that we need a new heaven and a new earth because this one is wrapped up in futility. It's wrapped up in futility. We are not where we ought to be. I think for a lot of us, Christians especially, we must not declare to the world a need for an afterlife and spending eternity with God if all of our joy and our affection and all of the energy of our life is fine and content with the here and now. Those two things are completely opposite ideas and the world sniffs it out immediately. Oh, you long for a new place and things are broken and it's fine, but you sure seem content and you sure seem sure seem in love with the things. It's the reason, the reason that the Bible calls us to not be in love with the world, I think is partly because we will fool ourselves into believing this is our home. It is not. We have to reckon with the fall. The thing that's interesting about the fall is that the fall did not only affect us individually as sinners, the fall actually affected all of creation. It affected all of creation. The reason we wrestle with the fall is to understand and realize why God had to make a new place. This is Wayne Grudem talking about this new place. When referring to this place, Christians often talk about living with God in heaven forever. But in fact, the biblical teaching is richer than that. It tells us that there will be new heavens and a new earth, an entirely renewed creation, and we will live with God there. There will be a new place. God is is working through Jesus Christ to prepare for us a place that is void of mosquitoes and toil and shame. You should try it sometime. Just pick something that's terrible and broken and make make it serve you. I usually pick things every few months and whenever they come up, I just say, I hate sin. Like, I I hate this place. Jesus, come. Mosquitoes work really well. I told them in the 9 a.m. service, I don't know if you know this, but we have, like, mutated ninja mosquitoes in Tallahassee. Did you know that? In North Dakota, where I'm from, there's mosquitoes, like a lot of them. But they're gentlemanly-like. They're big enough. They're big enough to make a noise when they come. When they land on you, you feel it. And it's kind of like the old days where there was a duel where you would just, like, face it like a man and walk off 10 steps. These mosquitoes would slap you with the white glove like a man, right? Here, I think I'm fine. I think there's no bugs anywhere, and I'm outside for 20 or 30 minutes, and I look down, and my leg is a mountain of red mites, right? Either invisible, or they're, they're, they've been trained in Japanese ninja arts, something like that, they have. But this place is not, it's not right. And because of the fall, sin affected everything down to the very soil that we live upon. The ground is cursed. Joy to the world. Far as the curse is found. How far is the curse 
found in the very soil that we walk in. This fact that the earth itself and even the heavens, we'll get to that in a moment, are going to be remade is consistent all throughout Scripture. It's consistent all throughout Scripture. This is Peter wrestling with this same idea. Second Peter chapter 3. This is what he says about the fact that we're going to need a new place. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, all these things, this earth is to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved? What is that going to look like? Heavens set on fire and dissolved. The heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God is forgiving your sins in Jesus Christ, but he is up to so much more. He is remaking all things. This should stagger us. It's why, it's why verse 5 of Revelation 21 starts with, Behold, behold, I'm making all things new. Like that statement ought to stagger us a little bit. It needs a behold. When was the last time you said behold in your everyday life? Probably never. But if you brought someone in, it was a surprise party, and you prepared a meal or a feast for them, right? You brought them in, and you threw open the door, and you said, behold! Right? I mean, that's an expectation. It better not be like a chili cheese burrito from Taco Bell on the table. Behold, in other words, this is, this is something new and exciting, a reality that you'd never even imagined. That's what God is up to in creating a new place. It's not just Revelation that anticipates it. It's not just Peter that anticipates it. All the way back, a thousand years plus, Isaiah the prophet is speaking. The last 20-some chapters of Isaiah is an amazing, glorious picture of what God is going to do. He's going to usher in newness. This is what we find, Isaiah 65, starting in verse 17. In Isaiah 65, it reads like this. What's the first words again? For behold, this is not a minor thing. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that, in that which I will create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people and no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. This picture, newness, newness, all the way for the soil is something to behold. Whether you behold it or not, you know that the earth actually is beholding the glory of God and making things new in Jesus. I think oftentimes, you know that the rocks themselves anticipate heaven more than us. I really believe that. I know that sounds like an outlandish statement. Listen to Romans chapter 8. This connects the two concepts. There's a fall and there will be newness. Listen to the glories of Romans 8. I'm just going to read a few verses. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I'm going to stop right there. I just want to say to you, as clearly as I possibly can, 
Sin affected every single thing. And Jesus matters more than just forgiving individual sins. He is going to make a glorious new creation. So much so that the leaves of the trees are rustling and waiting and longing for the coronation of you as sons and daughters of God. Creation is longing. And I don't know how the world that is dying and destitute and needs a gospel can look in on Christians who are distracted and listless when we have been given a picture that is so profound that creation itself is crying out. If you think it's a big deal that your sins are forgiven, creation is like, oh, yes. There will be a new place. There will be a new place. Not just kind of new. Not just a little bit better or more comfortable. Brand new. There's so many symbols of this. It's not just the earth that will be created, but it says the heavens as well. And I think there's a a good reason for that. Mainly, Mainly the reason is because up to this point, heaven has been described as a place that is out there, away. Heaven, the way that it exists at this current time, is almost a result of the fall. God is out there somewhere, not here and now. When heaven, when it's remade, there's going to be an interaction and a play. We'll get to that more in just a moment. Another thing that shows us the newness, the kind of thing that's going to be ushered in, the end of verse 1, it says, the sea was no more. The sea was no more. Why not the sea? Some of you are like, I just got my beach house. I like 30A. Like, why the sea no more? This was, I thought, an instructive comment from Leon Morris in a commentary. He says this, from this, John goes on to say that there will, no longer, there will be no longer any sea. And this is a biblical idea all the way throughout the text. The sea is never still. It's a symbol of changefulness. We must moreover bear in mind that in antiquity, people did not have the means of coping successfully with the sea's dangers. And they regarded it as an unnatural element, a place of storms and danger. In the end, this seething cauldron, fraught with unlimited possibilities of evil, will disappear. No one lives on the sea. It is something to be crossed to arrive at one's destination, but there is nothing permanent about it. Sea, all through Scripture, flooding, water, is seen as an idea of judgment. And apparently, in this new creation, the sea will be no more. Some of you are like me, and you know that the sea, the ocean is is crazy, right? It, It can eat you. It will be done away with some way. I don't know if you're going to ask me why exactly and how does this work and what is it about it. I don't know all the answers to these things. I think that's why there's partly bound up in this idea. Just behold, okay? Just behold. Just stand there and look a while and one day we'll know. It's not just the fact that this place has fallen, not just that there's going to be a new place, but I want you to think about, it's not just like it's a better place, like, oh, I moved from Okaskogee to Naples, right? It's not like, oh, it's the same old me and I'm on a new place, right? There'll be a brand new you in some ways. Can you even imagine you without all your foibles? Can you imagine you without the terrible pretense of wondering what people think of you? Can you imagine you without the painful comparing of people around you, the misery of jealousy? 
Can you even imagine you, a heart not freighted down by anger and doubt? Just perfect, blissful rest of soul and spirit and mind. Can you even imagine you with perfect knowledge? This idea of you will know in fullness of what God has done for you. No questions and wondering. That is who you will be. And it's not just that your spiritual state will be remade. This is something we need to grapple with. You will have a brand new body. Jesus, when he resurrected, was the blueprint for us in our resurrection, and he has a body. He went out of his way to say, touch my hands. Watch me eat fish. I will drink water. You're going to have a body made new. One that doesn't get creaky and old. A lot of you are young people, and you don't understand this. You just think like, what do you mean? Bodies are awesome. They never hurt. They're never sore. I just run all day. Sleep two hours and I'm fine, right? The other day, our kids got new bikes. It was their birthday. They got these BMX bikes. And I went out like just like the most cheesy dad ever. Like, let me show you guys some like bunny hops and stuff. <laughs> this is what we used to do. You would not, I think, I think I pulled like four muscles in one little wheelie that I did. I got off and I, I looked at Sarah and I just said, getting old is the weirdest thing in the world. Your body itself the sinews, is that a word? The, the things that hold other things together inside of your body have been affected by sin. You are in an earthen vessel. You are wasting away. I don't care how much you work out. I don't care where the lighting was in your Instagram selfie collage. You are a wasting away vessel. And one day you will inherit a glorious timeless, ageless body that will make all of our preening and walking around and posturing here look like such silliness. Seriously, we will have new bodies. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones has to say about this. He said, everything will be glorified, even nature itself. And that seems to me to be the biblical teaching about the eternal state. That what we call heaven is life in this perfect world as God intended humanity to live. Men and women are meant to live in the body. You are meant to live in the body. And will live in a glorified body, in a glorified world, and God will be with them. That's the full picture. And I think we need this because whether you know it or not, Christians have a lot of what... If you want to put a a label on it, we have a lot of Gnosticism in us. Gnosticism is a heresy, a kind of idea that all physical things were where evil resided. And that the body itself and things of this earth are all evil and need to be done away with. And we need to do as much as we can to only live in the ethereal, spiritual, floaty world of nothing. This keeps Christians, myself included, and has for years, from enjoying the physicality of the things that God has given. God designed for you to glory in the cold, refreshing nature of a cup of water. We do not need to make excuses or qualifications for enjoying the good things of this world. When God designed humans in a perfect state, he made them in a physical world with bodies and arms and legs and running and eating and taste buds. 
Don't be the overly spiritual person who thinks that it's more hyper-pietistic to not enjoy anything in life. You've been given the physical world to embrace it. Johnny says, oh, I love these lobster. It's just amazing. It's perfect. I don't know what a perfect lobster even tastes like. It's firm and oceany, right? It's just awesome, right? And then Jim is like, I know what you mean. And my steak, it's amazing. I heard it moo. It's just so fresh, right? It's amazing. Look at this. Just, this meal is so good. Don't, you do not have to be overly spiritual Sammy who's like, well, a meal is good, but one day the marriage supper of the lamb, Jesus is so much better, right? Of course it'll be better, but the here and now, this real place we live in, God has given to us as a gift. Physicality is an okay thing. Of course it's fraught with temptations and it's impacted by the fall. But you one day, whether you know this or not, you one day, what eternity will look like because of Jesus is you will have a perfect body. Just think, just think about that for a while. That will change your idea of heaven. I really think that. If heaven is a floating around place where everyone grows up to be a ghost, then it's like, what in the world are we going to do forever? But I can think of endless things to do if I can run and never tire. If I can play the scales that I can never get right now. It's like, stupid fingers, stupid. You know what I mean? Like, I can't get it. Give me 5,000 years and I will nail it. I really will. You will have a body. These are the basics, the foundations. We should dig through scripture and offer to our own souls and to the world a hope that will not end. And here is, of course, the most glorious thing. Not only new place and new bodies, but there will be a new kind of unity. Heaven and earth will be bonded in a way that we're not even sure exactly how this works. John says he looks out and he sees the holy city in verse 2. New Jerusalem, it comes down out of heaven from God. Now I can imagine that he's watching this thing and John is looking around thinking like, okay, I think this is weird. Does anyone else think this is weird? <laughs> like, is this nor- normally heaven and earth don't interact like this, right? This isn't a cheesy knockoff of Independence Day. Like what happened Right now, heaven, it seems like, interacts and interplays with earth in a way that is profound. God is no longer out there. He is here. The promise of the Bible, at the end of the day, when you meet him face to face, here's what you're going to realize. You're going to realize that the goodness of the gospel at the end, dealing with sin, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, all of your obedience, at the end of it, you will see all this was just so that you could enjoy God and enjoy him forever. It will become so clear to you. You'll be opened up into a relationship and a unity with God that you never thought possible. That what was lost when Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day and then the next day are hiding naked in their shame, that thing that was lost will be so profound, be such a chasm in your mind that when it's restored, when God says, I will be your God, you will be my people, I will be with you in perfection, not somewhere else out there, but here and in the now, you will realize what good news the gospel really is. Jesus is reconciling to himself all things. God the Father, you the Son, you the Daughter, all things. This is the promise of Colossians 1.20. 
Colossians 1.20, what is God doing through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven? The interaction between these two is unity. He's making peace by the blood of his cross. This is not all that we could say about the newness of this place, except I want to say to you, Christian, long for what Jesus is doing on your behalf. He's making a place for you. And when people wonder, and when they ask about the afterlife, and when they face disease and destruction, you can say to them with certainty, God has answered this question. He hasn't answered answered the specifics of what about leukemia now. But in the end, the answer will be clear and obvious that in Jesus Christ, he was reconciling all diseases, all death, all despair, into himself. That's the promise that we have. That should make you wake up in the morning. T.S. Eliot, I read some poetry from him this week, and I know that sounds so like, I was reading some poetry this week, right? I know that sounds like a little whatever. I don't normally read, I don't normally read poetry, but I read this, uh, I was pointing to this poem through a sermon that I listened to called East Coker. What's amazing about it is it starts a little bit despairing. It starts out with the phrase, in the beginning is my end. That's a recognition that we were all born into this place and the fall is there and ever present with us. He goes through a cycle saying that old, old is replaced over and over and over again. And that even the new things eventually go to ashes and finally ashes to the earth. But over the course of the poem, you can see Eliot sort of letting hope into his life. Letting hope into his life. In the last phrase, he comes right back around to it. And instead of saying, in the beginning is my end, he says, in the end is my beginning. That is the promise for the Christian. We can live as though hope is real. The end will not be the end for you. Because of what Jesus has done, you will die. You will meet God face to face and you will proclaim over all creation, in the end, this is my beginning. That's the hope of the gospel. And I want us to see it straight, 100 proof. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the truth of Scripture. Thank you for the testimonies we heard today. Uh, What grace you've given, what kindness. You are a good God. You've done marvelous 